welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. And Karen Koch-Tesman, Senior Editor. On this week's podcast, we have part two of our 2022 Financial Markets Preview. Plus, CMS has restricted access to Aduhelm from Biogen effectively overturning FDA's decision on the Alzheimer therapy for a large portion of the U.S. population. And Karen returns for another edition of What's on Tap in BioCentury's Distillery. But first, BioCentury This Week is brought to you by ICON, a leading clinical research organization powered by healthcare intelligence. ICON advances clinical research by providing outsourced services to pharma, biotech, and other healthcare organizations. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs starting in the preclinical phase through real-world studies and into commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com slash biotech. All righty, Stephen, you and... Our colleague, Lauren Martz, spent much of December talking to investors and bankers around the world about what they were looking for this year in the public markets, what indications buy-siders are into. We discussed that a bit on last week's pod. So if you missed that, go back and listen to it. Now we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what's up with M&A, what's up with IPOs. Stephen, what were the major themes that emerged from your conversations with investors? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So we spoke to 15 buy-siders and bankers. And for each one of those conversations, the first question that we asked them was, tell me one thing, one reason why people should be excited about biotech in 2022. And what I found really telling was the fact that they weren't saying oh, well, there's this theme or there's CRISPR or there's gene therapy or there are these other hot technologies or things that they were excited about. The most common answer was, well, biotech got battered and hammered so hard last year that everything looks pretty cheap now. So we're kind of excited to be trying to buy back into the market in 22. What I found quite interesting was just what was implied by the answers that we got from a lot of these investors, that there just weren't a lot of things to be getting people really excited about just because you had this run of to be honest, kind of ho-hum news from the sector, you know, whether that was M&A, whether that was clinical data for the large part of the second half, or whether it was just stocks being down everywhere. Right. Um, it, was a, it was a terrible year for the XBI, which tracks small to mid-cap biotechs. How, how much did it end up being down in the end, Stephen? Well, it was down 20% on an absolute basis. But the real kind of kicker, what really hurts for buy-siders was the relative underperformance to the S&P 500. Yeah. I think that was about 47%. Yeah, so, and I re- recall talking to Adam Stone of Perceptive, and he just said that that's just a, an yep. unheard of dislocation. Exactly. Yep, that's right. That's right. And so, so in the end, I mean, when we did analysis of NASDAQ-listed biotechs, about a third of them were 10% or less off their 52-week lows, and nearly two-thirds were within 25% of their 52-week lows. So you just had this large swath of, of the sector that is just looking very cheap right now. And the hope 
people were saying was that, you know, that either creates good buying opportunities for them mm-hmm. to get back into stocks that a year ago they, they thought were overvalued, or it creates opportunities for acquirers, you know, all these uh, large farmers that are continually needing to refresh their pipelines and have more cash than some of them potentially know what to do with. That That's right. And I, I recall that you, uh, one of the people that you spoke with was Brad Longcar. And uh, one of the things that he said to you was, the time to have been nervous and uneasy about biotech valuations was this time last year, not today. And I think a lot that's of the right. people you talked to were really flagging just the quality of these companies that are way off their 52-week high, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, if you look at all these companies that are way down, obviously, there will be some companies that are down for good reason, right? That either ran into some troubles, had clinical issues, have some sort of financing overhang, something like that. But as a lot of the investors said, there will be some really good high-quality companies that are just getting dragged down by the markets. And so that's where they think that you know there are these going to be these buying opportunities. But the flip side of that coin is the fact that there are now, I think the number was 866 public biotech companies above a $200 million market cap, which is just a huge number. And the problem a lot of them were saying is that, yeah, you know, there might be a lot of companies that are down here, but we don't have the staffing or you know, the, the analysts or the people to check all these out. So there, there are going to be some of these companies that just get missed, basically. And so I think that's something we're going to have to pay more attention to kind of going forward is if you are a small cap biotech and you've got a good technology, how do you get seen? You know, how do you get people to, uh, to pay attention to you? So what does this mean for the IPO market headed yep. into this year? I mean, we're in January in recent years past. Yep. I, I recall January being an amazing month for follow-on financings, for IPOs. It feels a bit quiet so far. Uh, yep. What did you hear going into the year, Stephen? Yeah, so just a quick setup here, just to give you a sense of how kind of crazy it's been in the past two years, just plainly on IPO. So in 2020, there was basically the same amount raised both years. It was 34.6 billion last year in IPOs, 34.5 billion this year, roughly $70 billion in the past two years just for IPOs. So I had a quick look in our BCIQ database. If you tally up the amount of money that was raised for the 10 years prior to that, for an entire decade from 2010 to 2019, there were $62 billion raised in IPOs. It just gives you a sense of in two years, we've raised more money for IPOs than we had done in the prior 10, to give you a sense of the scale. There's just been this flood of companies, flood of money coming in, and they were just getting hammered. They just were not performing. I think the the final numbers at the end of the year were down a median of 21%. So I guess essentially on par with the XBI, but that was a very stark difference from what we had seen in 2020 when pretty much every IPO was working and every IPO was going up. But that was also in a market where you had the indices up 40, 30, 40, 50%. So IPOs were very much getting dragged down because there were just insiders participating in them. You had very little external buyers that were interested. And so the deals are getting done, but you don't have anyone that's interested in buying the stock. And so they're just naturally going to kind of trickle downwards when there's a little volume. I guess to answer your question, a very long-winded way of answering your question, Jeff, the expectation is that things are going to slow. We're not going to see another blowout, $30 billion IPO, 200 IPOs raised this year. 
I think things are going to slow down. I think we're going to see a slowdown in crossovers as well, because that's clearly what has been keeping this model ticking along is that if you're getting lots of crossovers done, they have to IPO. That's kind of the way the model's set up is they need to keep going to get their valuation step up. And so I think a lot of these guys on paper have probably gotten hit really hard. And so they're probably going to be uh, maybe taking a step back. Maybe they'll start looking at coming into some of these cheap public companies. Maybe they'll you know reallocate a bit more to the public space. Maybe they'll go into the earlier, earlier space rather than sticking in crossovers. But I think, I think we'll probably see a slowdown there. Yeah. And one figure in the story that caught my eye, Stephen, that relates to IPOs is the metric tracking the number of preclinical companies going public each year in the past six years. And it was a record last year, right? At 30. That was seven more than the prior year. Are these the companies that might face the most difficulty in in getting a new listing? Or is it more about the quality and the investors? I mean, there will always be the quality question comes in there. But I would say that if you're going to generalize, it's these very early stage companies that investors view as being a sort of the canary in the coal mine in terms of things getting too hot in the IPO market when you start seeing so many preclinical companies going public. Because the worry for them is, is that if they're two, three years away from their first clinical data, they're going to have a hard time. They're, they're going to languish a bit, right? Because if you're an investor, why do you need to own the stock ahead of that first clinical data? Which is why typically companies are set up such that they have their first meaningful proof of concept or that sort of thing within 12 months usually of their IPO. So that's where I think these preclinical companies, depending on where they are, can run into some issues. Excellent. Well, well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, certainly uh, enjoyed your story and Lauren's as well. Both are up on our website, biocentury.com. So be sure to dig into both of those stories as you plot your strategy for the year ahead. And have a good evening, Stephen. I know you're off in the UK. It's dinner time, so uh, or perhaps bedtime. We'll catch up with you uh, soon. And I'd now like to turn to CMS's coverage decision on Alzheimer's monoclonal antibody therapies and how that decision could evolve. I think it was a fairly surprising decision, was it not, Selena? Why don't you tell our listeners who may not have heard about this decision last week <laughs> and set things up for them and take it take it from there? There may be a few people under a rock somewhere, <laughs> but this has been a controversial um, process all the way along. Yeah, so CMS started a national coverage analysis last summer, and they released their draft decision very recently. And typically what CMS does is it covers therapies that FDA deems are worthy of granting marketing authorization. But in some cases, this sort of analysis to decide if it needs to restrict coverage or gather more evidence in some way. This particular decision was unprecedented because for on-label use of this drug, CMS is restricting access only to the context of randomized controlled trials. Typically, when you get a what's called coverage with evidence mechanism in place, it's for off-label use, not for on-label use. And many times it can just involve a registry or other types of real-world evidence as opposed to a randomized controlled trial. So this is the most restrictive access CMS could have granted without just saying, we're not granting any. Interesting. Yeah, um, I know... 
you know, you were very busy with this last week and you've been tracking the biogen therapy and its ups and downs for years now. It just seems like how many twists and turns could be left. Where do we go from here, Selena? What, what are the ramifications for this decision? Yeah, I mean, there's several things to think about there. A lot of the debate right now centers around sort of two things. By CMS restricting access you know, so much, has it effectively negated FDA's decision to grant approval for large parts of the population, anybody not in the clinical trial? And if so, is that a bad thing? Because FDA is the agency who makes the decisions about whether a drug is safe enough and effective enough to be used in the population. So is it muddying the waters between authorities, between agencies there? And then the other one is, what kind of a precedent does this set for the future? The language of the decision basically said, well, we don't think this drug should be covered for the broad population until there is evidence of clinical benefit. But of course, everything that comes through the accelerated approval pathway still has to prove its clinical benefit. It's been approved on a surrogate, something earlier. So on the precedent question, I talked to some former CMS officials, Mark McClellan and Sean Tunis. Neither of them were particularly worried about that. I know that there's been some vocal people out there raising this as a big issue. In fact, Bio put out a statement about it. But the way they see it is that this is a pretty unique situation. And historically, CMS has covered drugs that have come through accelerated approval. Nobody makes CMS do a national coverage decision, right? It's, it's within its power to decide when to use that mechanism based on the specifics of a given drug. And this is a unique situation and its financial impact would be massive. So they didn't seem to think that this would mean that going forward, other drugs under accelerated approval were necessarily going to have the same treatment. So that's a good thing. So Selena, what does this all mean for the next amyloid antibodies in line, like Lily's, for example? Yeah. So that's the main thing. So this is not, some people get confused about this. This national coverage determination is not just for Aduhelm, right? It's a class-wide decision for all the amyloid inhibitors. And so the most problematic thing about it being class-wide and being indeterminate with no clear stopping criteria is that in the next 18 months, we're going to see three more therapies read out. And those trials are phase three trials. So they're not just going to read out whether these drugs can lower amyloid. They're going to read out whether they have clinical benefit. I mean, they could get accelerated approval before that because Lily is planning to complete its rolling submission soon, but they could quickly get full approval. But the way that the NCD is written right now it doesn't distinguish a drug that's gotten accelerated approval from full approval. They would all be subject to the same highly restricted coverage. Not many people I've talked to think that this coverage with evidence restriction is going to just go away in the final draft, which is coming in April. But what they're hoping for are clarifications and modifications so that these next products coming down the line, if they manage to do what Biogen's didn't do, which is clearly demonstrate efficacy, that they can be broadly covered for the population. So that could happen through, like I was just saying, writing the language such that if a drug gets full approval, it demonstrates efficacy, it's no longer subject to the NCD, for instance. Another big thing that, that's on CMS's criteria for how these clinical trials should be run under its coverage with evidence program is that the trial population needs to represent the diversity of the US population. 
And none of the ongoing trials right now reflect that diversity. So that could sink all of them, right, in terms of getting coverage. On the other hand, one way that the NCD could be modified would be to say, okay, well, if they get full approval, if they meet their endpoints in terms of clinical effectiveness, maybe some of these other questions about how does it work in different populations of people could be done in the post-market setting. So that's another way that the NCD could be modified from the draft to the final to allow some of these requirements that CMS clearly wants to be put into the real-world evidence collection setting. All righty. Well, you know, you brought up Lily there. You did have a quote in your story from Ann White, who is the president of Lily Neuroscience. And she said, we see the CED studies required by this NCD as duplicative and inappropriate for their therapy. They expect that for drugs with established efficacy, CMS will ensure access for all appropriate patients without creating further health inequities. So imagine they weren't terribly happy with the decision. We'll see what is next. Thanks for that update, Selena. And um, I'm sure it'll just be a straight path from here on out for this biogen therapy. I mean, the next thing is the 30-day comment period. Just if anybody out there wants to comment, that's open now, public comments for the next month. And then in April 11, the final decision. And and then so for that, do you just go to CMS's website or? Yep. Yep. Okay. Excellent. All righty. Well, let's go upstream and find out what is on tap in BioCentury's distillery. Karen, welcome back. Thanks, Jeff. And didn't make my normal appearance at the top of the month just because everything going on, J.P. Morgan, et cetera, but glad to be back. So yeah, for those of you who don't know, the distillery is BioCentury's survey of translational research, largely coming from academia, preclinical publications that identify near-term opportunities for product development, either because they identify new targets and biology to exploit in a disease setting, or new technologies that get after perhaps some known biology, but in a more effective or new ways. And it's always a lot of fun going through the abstracts that come out and trying to separate out which ones represent the the kind of near-term opportunities versus things that are more translational research that's more steps removed from commercializations. We like to distill that down for our readership and then write these short summaries that capture the key translational experiments of the paper. And people can, of course, then go on to explore the full paper if it's interesting to them. So a couple I wanted to highlight from the latest batch, both in Science Translational Medicine and both that show the therapeutic benefit of blocking not just a single protein, but actually an interaction between two proteins, which I thought was pretty interesting. So one of these comes from the lab of Tony Wiss-Corre at Stanford University. Here, the, the lab blocked an interaction between CD22 and IGF2R for Neiman pick type C. So this is a lysosomal storage disease they were able to figure out that soluble CD22, which I guess is elevated in the disease, was impairing lysosomal trafficking. And you could counteract that impairment if you blocked the interaction between CD22 and IGF2R. And interestingly, 
there are antibodies out there in development against CD22 for other indications, but none of those antibodies were able to have the effect you needed to have a specific construct geared toward blocking that specific interaction. Another one, sort of similarly on those lines, was from the lab of Anne-Marie Schmidt at New York University Langone Medical Center. Here, her lab was looking at blocking the interaction between a multi-ligand receptor called RAGE, great name, and a scaffold protein called DIAF1, and blocking that interaction to treat type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So it looks like the interaction had previously been implicated in the disease And here they optimized a small molecule with a KD of two nanomolars and showed disease-modifying effects in translational models. So those I thought were, were two kind of interesting examples of the kinds of things we're finding in the distillery. The best way to find the distillery is going to biocentury.com and typing distillery in the search bar. I also wanted to take a moment to highlight a different aspect of our translational coverage, which is our weekly translation in brief. So these are also often drawing from the literature. These come out on Fridays every week. And here we're often looking at work that's coming out from companies or work that maybe represents not one disease-modifying product, but potentially an approach that can affect multiple programs in development. And one that stood out here was a paper from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center team of Michelle Sadelin and Isabel Riviere. Um, and they designed basically a construct that's sort of halfway between a car and a TCR. It's an HLA-independent TCR construct that allowed them to target tumor cells with low antigen density. And so it was this interesting kind of Frankenstein between cars and TCRs with certain TCR domains, but the ultimately the antigen binding domains were from the car. It was pretty interesting. And I recommend folks check that out along with the other translational items in our weekly roundup. Thanks, Karen. And, and Karen has really been doing a push to increase our translational coverage. You'll notice that we've got many, many more distillery items than we've had in the not too distant past. And so dig in, find out what's next, what's coming up. Uh, that's what Karen's all about. Coming up on biocentury.com, we'll have the next installment in our 2022 financial kickoff package a deep dive into the state of the IPO market, and we'll have a landscape story on HSV therapies, improved antivirals, antibodies, vaccines, and possible cures are on the distant horizon. And we'll fire our emerging company profile series back up. We'll have at least two stories for you this week, and I will resume the emerging company spotlight on next week's pod. Thanks for tuning in. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Until next week, thanks.